Hello and welcome to the Lutheran Witness Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Askins. First off, we want to start with a huge thank you to our podcast partners, KFUO.org, Christ for You, anytime, anywhere. Check out KFUO, KFUO.org. Typically here on the Lutheran Witness Podcast, we read for you the articles published on the Lutheran Witness website. And I have to admit and apologize, I've been a little uh, behind on getting those done. I need to catch up on that. Part of the reason I was delayed is because the LCMS Kansas District asked me to present at their convention this June, and uh, I spent quite a bit of time preparing for that. And after the conclusion of the second part, a number of people came up to me and asked if I would be willing to release this uh, presentation, these two presentations, as a podcast. And so that's exactly what I'm offering for you here today. This is part one of the presentation to the Kansas District. Uh, it's about 45 minutes. You get kind of this great introduction in ter- uh, to the mission of the church and the witness of the church, and then how the Lutheran witness has portrayed this witness over the years. And then part two is a discussion of uh, those folks who identify religiously as none. Uh, that is, they mark none in O-N-E on the religious surveys, and then how we as the church might address this in particular, uh, and especially uh, in relation to our homes So, and our witness in the homes. So that's the kind of the overview of the presentation. It's two together, each of them 45 minutes. Uh, you'll have the first one today, and then the next one will come out uh, in, in about a week. Now, I want to uh, make a comment real quick on this presentation. Now, the first... Uh, I don't know, three or four minutes, there's some really kind of annoying buzzing in the presentation. It goes away. Feel free to skip ahead if it's too annoying. You don't miss a whole lot in the first part of the section if it's annoying you, but do hang on uh, and get through the the buzzing. It does eventually end. So thank you once again to the Kansas District for asking me to do this. It was a great delight and a pleasure to do that. Um, if you're in Kansas, you should look them up and uh, find a Lutheran church if you don't have one. They're in Kansas. Otherwise, enjoy this presentation offered to the Kansas District by yours truly. Welcome back, everyone. I'd now like to introduce once again our convention essayist, the Reverend Ori Askins, who, as I mentioned earlier, is the managing editor of the Lutheran Witness. You can learn more about Reverend Askins and his speaker bio in the convention workbook. For now, I'll just add that I first got to know Pastor Atkins during our time together at a doxology retreat event. Knowing his work and his experience as a pastor in our church body, I thought that Reverend Askins would make an ideal convention keynote speaker. Reverend Askins, the stage is yours. There we are. It's a great honor and privilege to be with you today to serve you both here at your convention, but then also to regularly serve you in the pages of the Lutheran Witness. It is to me one of the greatest honors uh, I can ever or will ever have. So uh, thank you for this opportunity and for the opportunity to serve you in that way. Now that we're in the after lunch slump, I should point out uh, President Panzer asked me to talk in slow, gentle tones to aid your nap this afternoon. Uh, don't pound too much on the podium. No. If I can, uh, I'd like, as we, uh, as I prepare for this presentation, to give a few background points uh, from my own life to kind of give some explanation as to why I'm saying the things that I'm saying. So before serving as, a, uh, as the editor of the Lutheran Witness, I served for four and a half years 
as a missionary in Asia. My family and I lived for two years in Hong Kong and then for two years in Taiwan. But my role there was actually serving the entire region. So I regularly traveled to see the work of our partner churches throughout the region and to support them in their work and the proclamation of the gospel. So that aspect of, of mission work, as we're going to talk about through here uh, in the presentation, that informs uh, what I'm talking about here. And then prior to that, I served for nearly five years as a pastor of a small congregation in Livingston, Texas. In many ways, when I write uh, and select topics and write for the Lutheran Witness, it is that small little congregation, Trinity Lutheran in Livingston, Texas, that I'm writing to and the people I'm writing for. Um, and then finally, I should point out I'm a husband. My wife and I have only seven children. I want to point out I'm delighted to see little children here today. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, my children are all fairly young, all of them 14 or younger, but they nevertheless inform much of what I say, especially tomorrow. So that's my background out of the way. Uh, a couple of notes about what we're going to do uh, in this presentation. There are going to be four chunks that you can kind of break this presentation down into. Uh, the first chunk we're going to talk about today is going to be the, uh, the, your Bible passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, and we're going to deduce some, some mission principles, mission thoughts, witness thoughts uh, from that. And then the second chunk for today, we're going to walk through a history of the Lutheran witness and how it has understood the witness of the church over time, how it has uh, presented the church's witness throughout the 140 years it has been publishing the magazine. In fact, I sh I'm kind of proud of this. The Lutheran Witness is older than National Geographic by about six years. So that's how old your church's ma magazine is. Uh, the next two chunks will be uh, tomorrow, and uh, we're going to discuss uh, one of the major challenges we face as the church in the culture around us, uh, particularly related to those who identify uh, religiously as none, that's not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, not belonging to religious affiliation. And then the last chunk will be offering some practical suggestions in terms of how we as the church can address that, that challenge. So that's where we're going to go. That's kind of the overall outline of what's going to happen. So with that in mind, let's begin with this first chunk and look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, and here is the passage in full. St. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Anytime we look at a passage of scriptures, as I'm sure you pastors do, and as you, uh, as you uh, lay people out there who study with your pastors, it's important to begin with the context. And St. Peter was writing this first epistle to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter expected that this letter would be read by numerous Christians, many Christians. And if the topics of his letter are any indication, these Christians were experiencing persecution, significant persecution for their faith. This persecution, this fire they were experiencing was a testing of the faith. And this testing, these various trials, he said, would result in the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Note that real quick, that the persecution 
the, the struggles, the trials that they are enduring as a consequence of their faith, what does he say this results in? It results in praise and glory and honor, that as persecution increases, so also does the praise and glory and honor that belongs to Christ in his name alone. Thus tested and strengthened, St. Peter describes how the church is being built into a living temple of God, a household of God, by the Holy Spirit. He says they are a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And with this transition, St. Peter begins to talk about uh, building the house of God. Now, I'm originally from Texas, and for new Texas home buyers, we would often joke that there are only two kinds of foundations in Texas, those that have been fixed and those that need to be fixed. You see, in Texas, there is this special kind of absolutely useless clay that when the spring rains come, it swells up and gets really large, and then when the summer heat comes, it shrinks up and gets really small. And I remembering, I remember as a, a young man, the number of hours I spent feeding one of Dad's tape measures down the cracks in the backyard to measure how deep they went. That's this soil in Texas, and this constant shifting resulted in the need for regular foundation repair. So if you're going to build a house, you need to dig deep and put it on a foundation that is solid, something that is better than shifting Texas clay. And that is what St. Peter puts before his hearers in this passage right here. If you want to build the church into a house, it must be built on the foundation of Christ. And so St. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If the foundation of the church is out of plumb, if it is askew, if it is on something other than Christ Jesus, the entire building will turn into a giant spiritual tower of Pisa ready to fall with the slightest push. To build the church, it must be built upon Christ and his work for the world. From this foundation, from Christ and his work alone, the entire church grows. Now, we have a theological term, we have theological terms to describe this, We use this phrase, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. This doctrine is the doctrine of justification, the teaching that man is declared holy and just solely on account of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And it is from this central teaching point, this central doctrine of the church, that all the other doctrine of the church derives. It is the very cornerstone of the church. If this is askew, if it is not the center, it affects the entire work of the church. And I would say, for those of you who have studied history, Many of the issues of the church that it has faced through the last 2,000 years have resulted from putting something else in this central place, from putting the foundation of the church, that upon which the church stands or falls, as something other than Jesus Christ and him alone. Okay, so now let's move into the more immediate context of your passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. St. Peter declared that Jesus is the cornerstone, but he also uh, issues an interesting, not necessarily a warning, but an interesting uh, concern along with this. He says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in verse 8, he describes this as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, he says, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, these are verses 7 and 8, directly before the selected verses 9 and 10 that are the theme for your convention. Christ is both the foundation of the church and also the stone over which people will stumble. He is the rock of offense. 
This rock of offense uh, in the Hebrew is literally Petron Scandalon. It kind of makes you wonder if Peter is making a play on his own name, the Petron Scandalon. The term scandal here is not simply a political scandal, who got caught in bed with whom, but rather a scandal that leads to loss of faith. That is what the scandal is. Now, this seems a bit odd at this point as we are discussing uh, uh, nations to bring up Jesus as a scandal. But this is the gospel is always a scandal to, to some. The scriptures will bear this out. If we look at the prophets, in particular, I think of the prophet Ezekiel, God sends Ezekiel to a people who will not listen to him, who will refuse to hear his message. He actually says to Ezekiel, I'm not sending you to a foreign people. I'm sending you to a people you can understand. And guess what? They're still not going to listen to you. And so I will make your face as hard as flint. That's what the word Ezekiel means, to harden, to harden his face. So God sends him to a people he knows will refuse to listen to him, and yet he goes anyway. God binds him and requires him to preach this message regardless. So also for the church today, even though Christ is the stumbling stone, even though many will refuse to listen and hear, God still calls the church to proclaim and teach this message of Christ, both internally within herself and externally within the world. But Jesus Christ himself is the crux of the matter. Now this brings us to the great transition word that us editors love to use, but. From stone of stumbling and rock of offense, Peter says, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, for this passage, we also have some relevant Old Testament context. Peter is echoing uh, a passage from Exodus chapter 19. The people of Israel had just traveled for the last three months out of the land of Egypt. They've arrived before Mount Sinai, and God speaks to them from the mountain, and God tells Moses, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In short, the people of Israel were treasured by God as a kingdom of priests to offer right sacrifices before him, and they were to be a holy nation. Let's unpack that a little bit. What does it mean for them to be a holy nation? It's another way of saying they were set apart. God chose them not because of anything they had done, but out of his pure grace, that through the line of Abraham, through these people, all nations of the earth would be blessed. He also gave them lives that were set apart from the world. He gave them weird things to do, at least it seems so by the world. They were to cut off the foreskin as a mark of being set aside. They were not allowed to eat certain foods and different meats. They couldn't work on the Sabbath. All of these marked them as set apart. Why? Because the line of Abraham had become the line of the promised seed, namely Jesus Christ. They were holy. They were set apart for that purpose, to be the nation through which Christ came. St. Peter applies this passage to the new Israel, to the church. He says of you, that you also are a chosen race, not of biological lineage, but of faith in God through Christ Jesus. You are a royal priesthood. The people of Israel found access to God only through priests and temple, but now as God's chosen people, you have access to him through word and sacrament. Whereas in the Old Testament, the priests had access once again to God 
Uh, now God's pastors directly distribute the gifts to the priests, uh, distribute to you the gifts of God's presence. Finally, you are a holy nation and his own possession. He has set apart you from the world as his own. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this being set apart tomorrow, but I want to hit a bit on it here today also. This is not just a pitch for, for a Pastor Bonick's program, Set Apart to Serve, uh, but he has actually set apart your lives as Christians. Your lives are to be different from the world. They are to look different from the world. For instance, drunkenness and debauchery are to have no place among you. You are to have nothing to do with the wickedness of this world. You have been called out of that darkness into the light. When people see you, Peter tells, Peter tells the people to whom he's writing to be ready to give an answer for the hope that they have. Why would people be asking about the hope that they have unless they saw something in your life that caused them to say, what is this hope that you have? If our lives are not distinct from the world, then they are missing something. You have been set apart. Okay, so with this kind of framework and understanding of 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, let's draw some conclusions for defining the mission of the church. So what is the mission of the church? Well, first, the work of mission is God's. Who calls people out of darkness into his marvelous light? God does that work. Who, cho- who makes sinners into a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? God does that work. Who shows mercy? God shows mercy. The work of making sinners into saints is his alone, and he alone does this through his church. Now, I think your theme of your convention gets to this point and helps explain this. Your proclaim, teach, and share. Now, I have to confess, I was talking with President Panza earlier. I didn't realize your committees had been structured in a certain way based on these themes. So I have totally discombobulated them. So don't think that I'm giving a theological articulation of your, your committees here. Uh, but, but we're going to work with this anyways. Okay, so proclaim, teach, and share. Uh, in her work, the church proclaims the message of salvation to the world. This proclamation occurs in showing sinners their sins and then pointing them to the healing word of the gospel. This ongoing work happens predominantly from the pulpit as the pastor proclaims this message in season and out. There is Thus, there is an ongoing work of the church in preaching to her people. The proclamation, this is one of the themes we're going to get through here uh, regularly in this presentation, is the work of witness is both an internal and an external witness and we can't neglect one for the sake of the other. We must continue to preach faithfully from the pulpits so that the people of God can, be, can hear this message and be built up in this, that they might also bring it out to the world. Okay? So the ongoing work of preaching to her people. Teaching. The church also teaches. Our Lord gives explicit instructions to teach the faith, to disciple those who enter the church's fold, the church's fold, as he does in Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching. So also here, part of the church's witness before the world, we teach. And finally, we share. I don't think I'm stretching the semantic range of this word too much when I apply this to the words, the work of the church in the sacraments. The first two terms directly relate to the oral verbal proclamation and teaching. This sharing is of a physical variety. We literally share, pass from hand to mouth the very message of the gospel as we receive the Lord's body and blood from the hand of his servants. We share the mercy of Christ as God brings us to new life in waters of holy baptism. Thus, we proclaim, we teach, and we share as a holy nation.
Okay, so the church's work, her mission, centers around Jesus Christ and his work for the world. This is the doctrine, in sum, upon which the church stands or falls. The work of redemption and bringing his chosen people into this household of faith is entirely and completely his own. And we, as his holy nation, witness to this work as we receive the means of grace and as we bring others to receive the means of grace as well. Now, one of the best articulations of the mission of the church that I have heard actually comes from Robert Preuss, and it really kind of encapsulates everything I've said here in a short, punchy way. This is from 1972. He said this, The church's mission is faithfully to preserve the means of grace, pure and unadulterated, to use them for her own edification, and to bring them to those who do not yet belong to the kingdom. Once again, the church's mission is faithfully to preserve the means of grace, pure and unadulterated, to use them for her own edification, and to bring them to those who do not yet belong to the kingdom. The central piece of this mission is therefore bringing the fruit of Christ's justifying work both to those in the church and also to those who do not yet belong to the church. Or, as we have said, proclaiming, teaching, and sharing as God's beloved nation. Okay, so that's kind of the quick summary of uh, your, your passage from 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, an articulation of how this relates to your convention. Now we get into the fun part, and that's the history of the Lutheran witness. Everybody loves history, right? The interpretation of this mission and this understanding of mission has varied over the, over the years. Since the Lutheran Witness is now celebrating over 140 years of publication in the church, it can actually help us see how this understanding of mission has varied throughout the last 140 years. Starting with the founding of the magazine in 1882, and then a couple of major inflection points, particularly in the 60s and then the 90s and 2010s, we're going to examine how this church, how the LCMS has viewed mission throughout this time. And to do that, I've you know, I could sit and, and pick various articles throughout these periods. I decided to choose one issue from each of these periods, and we're going to walk through this issue, and you can kind of see how it portrays the mission of the church and how it helps us see the mission uh, of the church. Okay, so let's start with, actually, the very founding of the magazine. The Lutheran Witness, as I mentioned, was founded in 1882, but it grew out of the predestinarian controversy between the LCMS and the Ohio Synod and other Lutheran church bodies in America. At the time, in 82, 18, that's 1882, the LCMS operated exclusively in German. In fact, they published the magazine, Der Luther Honor. It was the German language magazine founded by Walther, and it served the LCMS. English-speaking Lutherans in America at that time uh, did not really affiliate directly with the LCMS. Rather, they affiliated with the Ohio Synod, which was responsible for publishing the English-language newsletter of the day. At the height of the predestinarian controversy, a number of English-speaking Lutherans rejected the Ohio Synod's teaching, rightfully so, on predestination, and they asked the LCMS to start an English-speaking newsletter. Well, the problem with the LCMS at the time is we were Germans, and we didn't do English. We only did German. And so uh, the LCMS called on Reverend C.A. Frank uh, to start a newsletter for English-speaking Lutherans who are concerned about faithful Lutheran doctrine. And that's exactly what he did. And he edited this magazine for many years until the English conference and eventually the English synod was formed, uh, when, and then they took it over. 
And then finally, uh, the LCMS uh, absorbed the LCMS, or the, the English Synod into the English district in 1911, and the Lutheran Witness became the official organ or newspaper of the LCMS at that time. So the genesis, the whole point of that, all that discussion was the genesis of the Lutheran Witness was a concern for doctrine. What an amazing witness we have that that we today who often balk at doctrinal discussion and doctrinal concerns, the lady of the church in 1882 took the word of God so seriously that they supported a magazine to teach them this correct doctrine. That was their, they, they, they treasured this. They, they paid, and I know it doesn't sound like a whole lot, but I think it was a dollar a year, right? Which at the time is not an insignificant sum of money uh, and actually supported this magazine. Okay. Let's look at this very first issue of the magazine. It shows the importance of doctrinal teaching for the people of God, and it not only emphasized this teaching, but it did it in a way that was easy and clear to understand. The very first article that shows up was titled, How Man is Converted to God. With this article, C.A. Frank is shooting a, a, a shot across the bow of the Ohio Synod right away dealing with predestination. And he opens with a raft of Bible passages. It's actually fascinating. This is one of the things I think I need to work on as an editor is including more and more uh, scripture passages because you could pretty much recompile the scripture from all the scripture passages that these guys quoted uh, in the uh, early issues of the Lutheran Witness. So he had 17 quotations in the very first uh, single page of the article. But then he explains the issue of predestination in a simple way. Here's what he says. Now this preaching, all those ought to hear who desire to be saved. For the preaching of God's word and the hearing of it are the instruments of the Holy Spirit by, with, and through which he wishes to operate efficaciously and to convert men unto God and to work in them both to will and to do. He continues a paragraph later. Through this instrument, namely the preaching and learning of his word, God works in us softens our heart and draws man so that through the preaching of the law he perceives his sin and the wrath of God and feels the true fear, contrition, and sorrow in his heart. And through preaching and meditation on the Holy Gospel, which promises the most gracious remission of sins in Christ, a spark of faith is enkindled in him. He accepts the forgiveness of, Christ, of sins for Christ's sake and consoles himself with the promise of the Gospel. And thus the Holy Spirit, who works all these things, is sent forth into the heart. In other words, the point he's making in a very clear, understandable way is the work of conversion belongs to God entirely from beginning to end. It depends entirely and completely on him. And he does this through the means of grace, through word and sacraments, to soften our hearts with the law and to bring us to faith by the gospel. This was the very heart of the predestinarian controversy, the very controversy that brought this magazine into existence. It revolved around how God predestined someone to salvation. Right? Does God choose you for salvation based on something you have done, or is it something that he, that he has done? Does it belong entirely in him? C.F.W. Walther and the LCMS taught the work of conversion belonged entirely to God, whereas the Ohio Synod taught that God elected us, chose us, for salvation in view of the faith we would one day have. In other words, the Ohio Synod taught that God saved us, elected us, chose us, in view of something we would one day do. The beauty of this article here this doctrinal article right at the beginning, is that C.A. Frank explains it in this simple way and surrounds it with clear biblical teaching, a teaching that touches on the very heart of faith. If we are in some way responsible for our own salvation, then it is not entirely the work of Christ. 
And so Frank was thus seeking to faithfully preserve the means of grace, faithfully teach the word of God. So great doctrinal article that kind of sets the agenda for the magazine right from the beginning. Okay, what else was in this first issue of the Lutheran Witness? Well, there was another section called the polemical section. It was named not because it was belligerent, uh, but because it answered questions. And the first question that he takes on is, would it not suffice for a man's religious performances and salvation to own or believe in the existence of a supreme being without belief in the triune God? We might rephrase the question this way, must somebody believe that God is triune or is a simple belief in a higher power enough for salvation? Uh, obviously, you can imagine how he answered it. Uh, belief in the triune God is necessary. But what's interesting about this is that this question has gained in relevance today, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow as we talk about those who mark religiously none on their affiliation categories. So that was another section, the polemical section that, that answered questions. Uh, there were three other sections we're going to move through really quick uh, before we get to the last one, the editorial. And, and uh, one of these was a series of articles that he wrote uh, that kind of started in this first issue and worked through a number of issues, where he does a great job of bringing the discussion into the language of the people. And he does this by an imagined conversation between a person named C and a person named H, right? And H confesses a concern over Missouri's doctrine of predestination, worried that the LCMS taught double predestination, and so forth and so on. Uh, and, uh, and he uses this conversation between C and H and this kind of Socratic method where they're talking back and forth to help the laity who are reading his magazine understand how a conversation might go with somebody who disagrees with the Lutheran teaching on predestination. It's a very fantastic way of presenting this teaching in a creative way. Frank also started another column called Hearth and Home. Now, this Hearth and Home column was one of the longest-running columns in the magazine's history, and it was a series of little short moralistic stories. Some were true, some were entirely fictional, and they ranged from things like warning youth about secret societies such as the Odd Fellows and the Masonic Lodge. I had to I have to admit I had to look up on Google what the Odd Fellows were. I'd never heard of the Odd Fellows before. Um, but it also warned about philosophical ideas. It tells the story of this young college student. Uh, the story is called That Blank, and he thought of himself as a perfect blank, that is having no theological views whatsoever, completely malleable to whatever is around him. And he explains why that's a problem. These little stories were fantastic. Now, the thing is, I think many of us, if we were to read them today, might chuckle a little bit at them, but I'm not so sure we should. They served an important part of teaching and inculcating the faith uh, among God's people. And the, the point is this. He was teaching the faith among his readers with a theological, scriptural, and doctrinal rigor, as well as in a creative way. So it was just a fantastic section. And then he also included a section called Church News. And this was not just news going on here and now, uh, but it was news that affected um, the, the local church. It also included uh, broader news about the world around us. And we've actually recently started up another section uh, in the Lutheran Witness called the Snippets that does something that does just that, where we talk about here's the local news going on related to the LCMS, here's some global news that might interest you as a Christian. So uh, returning back to our roots in some ways, I suppose you could say. All right, the last section I want to discuss from the first issue is actually the editorial in which Frank explains the purposes and intents of the Lutheran Witness. And I have to admit, I love his opening line. He writes, our witness tenders no apology for its publication. From the outset, he knew right away he was going to have detractors. 
But this controversy, this predestinarian controversy, required boldness. Therefore, he boldly steps out and points out that the Ohio Synod had, quote, given way to the speculations of their reasoning ability and abandoned the tenets of the Lutheran Confession on predestination and are now decrying and defaming as erroneous the scripture-abiding teachings and teachers of the Lutheran persuasion. In other words, Frank saw the Lutheran witness as a tool for correcting false teaching. But it didn't end there either. For Frank and the founding fathers of Lutheran Witness, this magazine was also a tool for spreading genuine Lutheranism. He said he wanted to produce a paper at which no faithful minister would be grieved when he sees it in the hands of his parishioners. The Lutheran Witness was to have a missionary task as well. He describes it as a church paper. It's certainly a good means to do missionary work, to instruct, to admonish and comfort, to educate the church and its members. We have a home mission among our fellow citizens. You see there already this, this both internal and external witness. We have a responsibility to admonish, comfort, and instruct those already in the pews, but also a home mission among our fellow citizens, those who speak English and who need to hear uh, the proclamation of the gospel as we teach. There are obvious uh, parallels here in his writing with 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, and so on. Uh, the missionary task then, as he saw it, revolved around the preaching and teaching of God's word, and the Luther witness was to participate in this by supporting the pastors uh, in the teaching, in teaching the laity of the, of the church. Now, uh, as we had mentioned earlier, this was an especially acute need for English-speaking Lutherans. Um, uh, at the time, LCMS, the LCMS primarily served the German-speaking Lutherans. In fact, uh, our dedication to the German language goes very, very deep, and it's actually quite wonderful. Does anybody know how long we continue to publish Der Luther Honor in German, like actual German? I got a hand over there. 1974, very close, 1974. Yeah, we published Der Luther in 1974 in German is when we finished publishing that. And uh, one of the founding congregations of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, St. Lorenz in Frankenmuth, Michigan, still has one German service a month. Isn't that great? So, completely dedicated to the German language. Uh, and so, uh, English speakers at the time, in 1882, uh, those English speakers that were interested in historic confessional Lutheran theology, they didn't have a theological home. Uh, in America, English-speaking Lutheranism had been affected by trends and theology that were inimical to true Lutheranism. And this is, in fact, part of why the LCMS so long retained the use of German. They were afraid that turning to English would open the LCMS to influences in American Lutheranism, and to some degree, they were right. Uh, an example of this was uh, our favorite punching bag, Samuel Simon Schmucker. He wrote what is referred to by some as the American recension of the Augsburg Confession, as you know, the Augsburg Confession is one of these founding documents of the Lutheranism, a key interpretive text for us. Schmucker believed that it needed to be updated. It was an old-fashioned document written in the 1500s. We need to update this thing, right? And so he wrote another version that rejected central Lutheran teachings, such as baptismal regeneration and Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. So English-speaking Lutheranism in America was rife with these problems. And so C.A. Frank also thought of the Lutheran Witness as a missionary newsletter that would produce faithful Lutheran teaching in English for English-speaking English Lutherans who were in danger of being led astray by those who claimed to be Lutherans but were, in fact, not. 
So, in part, the witness of the church remains, as we said, a witness unto itself. In today's version of the magazine, we have included this duty at the bottom of the editor's letter in a section entitled, The Lutheran Witness Exists Too. Part of the purpose of the Lutheran Witness, even today, is to expose false teaching. This is one of our responsibilities. We have a duty uh, unto the church to mark and avoid those who teach falsely, even as our Lord commands in Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Sorry about that. In summary, what then do we learn from this very first issue of the Lutheran Witness about the mission of the church? It focuses on teaching from God's word. It focuses on teaching the lay members of the church. It used both doctrinal teaching, uh, doctrinal scriptural teaching, as well as teaching in a creative way. And it focused on witness both to those already within the church and to those outside the church. Or we might use the, you know, the, the language of, of uh, Robert Preuss. It sought to preserve the means of grace, pure and unadulterated, so that the church might use them for her own edification and that she might bring them to those who do not yet belong to the kingdom. So, with that summary of the early years, let's move on to the next inflection point, which is the 1960s. This trajectory established by C.A. Frank continued for many years. One of the high points of the Lutheran witness, in my opinion, is the decades-long service of the Reverend Dr. Theodore Grabner and the Reverend M.S. Somers. Their names were on the masthead of the magazine for over 35 years, from 1914 to 1949. And during their time, the magazine remained predominantly theological and educational, both in terms of teaching articles and expressing the faith in a creative way. Of all the reading I've done so far in the archives, one of my favorite quotes, this is totally not related to the presentation, so if you want to check out, that's fine. It's just a great quote. One of my favorite quotes uh, comes from Somers, this was in July 24, 1914, so we're on the cusp of World War I, right? And he writes this as he's warning about, the, about being soft on false doctrine for the sake of unity. He says this, No, we wish to be able to stand with St. Paul and confess truly with him, I have fought a good fight, I have kept the faith. God, to deliver us from the wishy-washy, namby-pamby twaddle of loving everything, and preserve to us and to our children the spirit of St. Paul, the spirit of Luther, who were sincere in their opposition to all false thought and deceitful teaching, true in their love, and self-sacrificing in their devotion to God and his truth. In this truth, they followed the Lord Jesus himself. I wish we could write that way still today some ways, but uh, just a fantastic little quote there from Somers. So in the 1950s and the 1960s, we start to see a shift away from uh, teaching and doctrine to a journalistic emphasis, to an emphasis not on articles that are teaching, but on stories, particularly of work in the foreign mission field in which the LCMS was heavily, heavily, heavily invested at the time. Stories and storytelling become the primary emphasis of the magazine. And honestly, it's not a surprise. This shift coincided with the hiring of the first full-time editor of the, of the magazine. Previously, the magazine had been served by either C.A. Frank or faculty at one of the Concordias, either Concordia College in Conover, North Carolina, or Concordia Seminary. Both uh, Theodore Grabner was uh, a, a faculty member at the seminary. 
So up to this point, it had been served by pastors, uh, but they hired the first full-time editor in the, the early 1960s, and he had a background. He was a pastor, but he had a background as a journalist. Before he went to seminary, he had served many years in the journalism industry. And we start to see a shift from, once again, teaching to storytelling. For instance, one of the more popular columns of the era was a, during this period was a column called People You Should Know, and it was just a list of famous Lutherans, right? Rather than, than just short bylines, the magazine starts including bios for authors. And by the mid-1960s, the magazine only had one, maybe two theological articles per issue, with the rest focusing on human interest or personal interest stories. And the magazine really continued in this trajectory until the 1990s, when we start to see a shift toward more theological articles, with the full transition toward what we have today beginning in 2010. But that's getting a little bit ahead. Let's talk about this era in the 1960s. And I see I have about uh, eight minutes left, so we're not going to get through this fully, but we'll, we'll get started here. So we're actually going to pick an article or an issue from the August uh, issue, or it's the August issue of 1966. And when you first open it, you can see the transition immediately from the newsletter style that Grabner and C.A. Frank had inculcated to what becomes almost a full magazine style, right? You start to see more pictures. There are more design elements, those little images and flourishes that appear in magazines. And rather than a doctrinal article leading off, you have an editorial from the, the primary editor. As for articles, once again, you'll notice this ongoing shift toward personal interest stories. Uh, in the August issue, there's the, the article about vibrant Lutheranism, which talked about the growth of the Florida-Georgia district, which at that point was only 18 years old. Another author, Ernest Bartels, shares his personal story of recovery from a time in a mental hospital toward his work in helping those who struggle with mental illness. And you don't get to the first theological article, or the, I should say the first theological article is a half page discussing peace followed by a single page book, a uh, single page of book reviews. So the, the point generally is, and then, and then finally another uh, uh, four pages, it looks like, of, of articles on people you ought to know. So the point is, the primary emphasis has shifted away from teaching the, ch the people to showing here is what the church is doing, personal interest stories of people who are telling stories about their lives. All right. The theological discussion in the August 1966 issue uh, is actually a discussion of uh, some uh, uh, resolutions adopted in Detroit in 1965 known as the Mission Affirmations. And the reason I picked this particular issue is because they show the shift in the view of missions at this point. So these affirmations had ushered in a perspective on missions that shifted away from the emphasis on the means of grace that it actually shifted toward an emphasis not on what God is doing, but on what we do. And from these affirmations and the articles here in this 1966 issue, we can glean, uh, there are of course many things we can glean, but we're going to take on three themes in particular here. The first theme is that missions is not simply foreign missions. And I think this is actually a good perspective. One of the things Martin Kretzmann, the architect of the affirmations, wanted to do was to shift the idea that mission is primarily something we send somebody overseas to go and do. He wanted to say, no, you need to look at your own context, look at where you are in the world, look at where your congregation is, and realize you have opportunities to witness to what Christ has done for you, even in your own context, where you are at. And, uh, and his brother, A.R. Kretzmann, actually wrote an article in this issue to that effect titled Mission in, Limit, in the Limit, Limitless Parish and applied these concepts to the church. Once again, I actually appreciate this shift to some degree. 
our witness does not exclusively take place on foreign soil. We do speak with our neighbors and those around us about the hope we have in Jesus Christ. So that's the first emphasis, not simply foreign mission. The next significant aspect of the mission affirmations, and one actually of the most common reasons the affirmations were criticized, was a shift in the focus of missions onto the social aspects of missions. The affirmations stated that the church had a mission to the whole man and the whole society, that this mission included both giving food to the hungry, but also speaking up against injustices by the state or the community, including economic injustices, civil rights, and so on. Echoes of this today remain in the social justice movement. So here's a quote, a direct quote from one of the mission affirmations in 1965. It was uh, one of the resolves there in the, in the affirmations. It was affirmation four. That Christians be encouraged as they attempt, under the judgment and forgiveness of God, to discover and further his good purposes in every area of life, to extend justice, social acceptance, and a full share in God's bounty to all people who are discriminated against and oppressed by reason of race, class, creed, or other unwarranted distinctions. The problem with this is that the primary task of the church is not a social mission. I'm not saying we don't care for our neighbors. We do. As Christians, we care for our neighbors, especially and foremost, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is not witness. The witness of the church must speak God's law and God's gospel. It must speak from God's word. We're going to get to this again uh, tomorrow, but the opening homily was amazing, where he talks about God speaking his word into your ears, picking you up by the ear, speaking into your word, ear, ear this word. The, the, the witness of the church must revolve around the proclamation of God's word and that sinners are made righteous. Some of this will include, of course, as a result of this, we want uh, to care for our neighbors and do good for them, but that is a consequence of hearing and receiving what this message, message says. So that was one of the other themes we get in this shift in the 1960s was this emphasis on social mission. And finally, the last uh, aspect I want to talk about, the last uh, emphasis we get here in this shift in the 1960s, is, is the emphasis that every aspect of the church's work must have a missionary dimension. This also is a bit problematic. Consider what happens when, when they move into this. Uh, Martin Kretzmann would actually say that everything the church does must have a missionary dimension, both the worship of the church, the doctrines and teachings of the church. In fact, he would write that anything that does not have a missionary dimension ought to be abandoned by the church. The church indeed has a, a, a responsibility to witness. This is, in fact, what St. Paul writes when he says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. The Lord indeed sends his apostles out into the world to make disciples and teach. The church has a responsibility to witness. The problem is when this becomes the primary lens through which we look at the world, rather than the doctrine of justification, it leads to various distortions. Okay? We don't have time to go into all of these distortions. I've got a couple of them listed here. But the point I, I, I really want to hit here is we still need to remain founded upon the doctrine of justification. This is the key and central insight, the lens through which we look at everything. And as a consequence of this, as a consequence of this pure teaching and doctrine, we go forth and share the love of Christ in the world. Okay, so... Uh, I have about a minute left to summarize all of that and prepare you for tomorrow. So uh, 
uh, the, the, I should say I have a minute left to summarize the next 80 years. Uh, so th we're going to do this really quickly. Uh, this change in mission continues all the way up into the 1990s. In the 90s, we start to see more theological articles start to make their way into the magazine, but the real kind of dramatic shift happens in 2010 when Adrian Dorr, now Adrian Hines, takes over the magazine, and there's a full shift towards catechetical teaching, an emphasis that remains to this day and will likely continue to remain for the years to come. So uh, we, this is not to say we shouldn't be doing human interest stories. Part of the reason we do fewer interest, human interest stories is we have another publication, Lutherans Engage the World, that deals with a lot of these human interest stories. If you don't have, get that publication, you should visit engage.lcms.org. It's fantastic. It's very well done. So uh, I highly recommend that. Let me uh, summarize then real quick what we have and then prepare you for tomorrow. So what have we done so far? We started with our responsibility in proclaiming, teaching, and sharing, uh, declaring the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then we drew a definition of missions from Preuss that revolves around the means of grace, the church using them both for internal and external witness. We then covered some history of the Luther witness and how it was concerned with both doctrinal and biblical teachings and how it did this in, in both, uh, both doctrinal teaching ways, but then also in creative ways with... Uh, with his, his stories and Hearth and Home and so forth. And then we closed with a bit of the shift in the 1960s that caused this tension between uh, doctrine and, and the mission work of the church. Tomorrow we're going to pick up on one of the many challenges we face as the church, uh, particularly those who mark none in the religious category. It's actually the largest religious group in America today. Uh, and then we're going to move, because we'll be in the afternoon and you'll be even more tired from all your work today, we're going to move into some practical suggestions about uh, how we might answer and respond to this as the church. So thank you again for your time, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this first part of the uh, my presentation to the Kansas District of the LCMS. I hope you found it instructive and helpful in terms of what the mission of the church looks like and how the Lutheran Witness has participated in this message. Uh, if you have any questions or would like to learn more, please reach out, roy.askins at lcms.org. As always, it's a delight to help you learn to look at the world from a Lutheran perspective.